0: I need you to imagine yourselves living in utter darkness. You've never seen the faces of your parents. You've never seen the shimmering, shifting radiance of a bird's feathers. Never seen a shadow or a rainbow or a tree or a color of any kind. Nothing has depth or magnitude because... You can only see what you feel, so how could you know what a mountain is like or a canyon? And this is your world. Day after day, since you were a little boy, you've had to sit on the streets and beg. Your parents have no other way or no other desire to provide for you. And as people walk by, they talk about you as if you were blind and deaf. You hear their judgments, their false pity, their pride. I wonder what that poor kid did wrong. Daddy, why is that man blind? Well, God must be judging his family, little one. You're used to the isolation. After all, all you can see is your own world, so living alone in this one is not hard. Now, today is the Sabbath. It's usually a good day for alms because the visitors to the temple feel a greater measure of guilt or self-congratulatory goodwill on this day. But you aren't expecting anything special. You've prayed no special prayer, done no special deed, no prompting that today just might be the day of healing. In actuality, you've never even considered sight as a possibility. You are blind. That's all you know and all you will ever know. You don't even know what light is. But on this day, out of nowhere, you hear a voice. It pierces through the noise of the crowd like the wail of a baby or the voice of your mother. You can't help but hear it. The voice is talking. Then loudly, he says over you As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world you feel someone near you he spits you've heard that sound many times but this time it's not on you and he seems to be doing something in the dirt at at your feet and you feel hands grip your face you pull your head away worried this might be another prankster someone worse trying to entertain themselves at your expense but the hands remain steady strong unyielding and they apply a sticky, wet substance to your eyes that by its smell you know has to be mud. And then that same piercing voice says to you, Go, wash in the pool of the scent. And then the man is gone. Reaching out, you protest, How? I don't know the way, I can't see. Even more so now that you wipe mud all over my face. You laugh to yourself at the irony, but no one is there to appreciate your humor. But somewhere inside, you know you must listen to this voice. What have I got to lose, you think? And so you stand, and gripping the wall, you proceed to grope down the over half-mile meandering path, grateful that there's only about 500 steps to fall down along the way. You've never, never been to this pool but you know that thousands of pilgrims come here ceremonially to wash every spring and that this pool is fed by the waters and they'd wash in it before the feast. You've never been to a feast obviously you've never even seen the temple so there's no need for you to come here but with some help from people along the way you come out in the broad open space you can feel the moisture you hear the people in the water on hands and knees you feel for the edge of the pool and sliding down feet first one step at a time you slowly descend into the water deeper and deeper the water rises above your knees it's above your waist, it's above your chest it's up to your chin and as you sink your head under the water as the earthy mud is washed from your eyes you think for the first time I wonder what light actually looks like. Were you there? Did you see it? John, this morning, is applying all his skill to try to get you to see. In essence, this chapter is the entire book of John in microcosm. Every theme that we've had thus far, we studied it as a church all last year, every one of those themes comes into this one chapter and is displayed for us. And through it all, John is convincing us that there is only one thing we need to know to qualify for the light of life. We have to know that we are blind without it. The evangelist articulates all his arguments through this carefully told narrative. It's a beautiful story. Doug did a great job reading it. It's this miraculous healing of a blind man. And it begins by showing to us the true nature of blindness. Now you think that would be obvious. There was a man born blind. End of story. That's what blindness is, right? But no. Actually what John is showing us is that truly... To be blind in the story, those who are blind in the story are those who think they can see. And it actually begins with the disciples. If you're there in John chapter 9 or is in your worship guide, notice how the disciples begin. They ask Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? Now, to our contemporary ears, we hear this, and it seems extremely offensive, harsh. Who would ever say such a thing in our contemporary age? But this was actually an accepted ancient Near Eastern worldview. Both Jews and Romans alike held to this. That suffering was the expression of divine judgment for some human sin. And throughout the story, John shows how this view... And really what he's trying to get at is all similar worldviews like it are examples of belief systems that enslave people, hold them in bondage, themselves and their societies. The disciples, the Jewish leaders, the blind man, his neighbors, his parents, they all are depicted as either the ignorant oppressed or the oppressive players in a system of blindness. The Pharisees, John wants us to see, are the perpetuators of this blindness. The chief priests of the blind temple of this world. Now if you notice the humor of this, but after the blind man returns to his neighborhood seeing. It says all the neighbors begin to argue over one another. Is this the man? It can't be the man. It can't be the man. And he's standing in the midst saying, hey, I am the man. He's standing there. Saying, I can see. And they don't want to believe him. So they bring him to the Pharisees. And here are the Pharisees. Hold this whole trial. Suggesting that he's actually lying. They bring his parents in. He has to be lying. Get his parents in here. They question them. And eventually they throw him from the synagogue. Reiterating this false systemic belief that the disciples confessed. You were born in utter sin. So even here in chapter 9, we're seeing that blindness is so much bigger than just your own or somebody else's personal blindness. There's whole systems that are holding us in it. There are self-perpetuating belief systems that are blind and blinding. And don't think you, a church, you and all of your education and contemporary sophisticated thinking are free from it if you walked into one of the New Haven schools or where I work, into the Bridgeport schools, guarantee you would find your in, within yourself a question rising up. You wouldn't like it. You maybe wouldn't even admit it. But you would be looking around and you would be tempted to say, why can't these kids just just get out of this? What happened to them? That they're stuck in the system. Why can't they break free? This is a form of blindness. For those of you that have never placed your faith in Jesus, you here this morning have to see that there are systems around you preventing you from actually seeing Jesus as he is. Systems that might not be inherently bad. Rationalism, scientism, materialism. Systems like a belief in tolerance, which is basically relativism. The belief that all beliefs have some kernel of truth to them. These aren't inherently bad. Tolerance isn't a bad thing. To tolerate others is not a bad thing. But when you make it the ultimate thing in the face of the miraculous, in the face of the ultimate sight that Jesus has to give and that he proclaims, that light of tolerance actually becomes darkness. And for those of you who do believe in Jesus, notice that the disciples are are susceptible to this blindness as well. They're the ones who ask the original question. Even in the church, our pursuit of God can be distorted. Our vision can be distorted by systemic blindness of the world. We may not realize it; we're swimming in it. Consumerism. I don't like this worship. I don't like this church. I don't like this particular preacher. It's it's in us. Worldliness is there. Racism. Saw a tweet this week as we're in Black History Month. And it was the New King James Bible that was given to slaves throughout the age of slavery in America. And every single reference related to to freedom had been excised from the Bible. Might we do the same things without even realizing it? This is why we as a church, we as a movement, are committed to church planning. Might seem like a jump, But we believe that in the church is the very nexus point, the very location of the light of Christ. Not always, sometimes, even I just said, we ourselves can be consumed in that blindness, but what we're after as the word is proclaimed, as we're living out fully the life of Christ, is that here, in the midst of a dark world, there is a place where light can be found. Why we're committed not just to being a church, but also to church planning. As all these churches are being perpetuated and started around both Connecticut and around the country, what we hope is that in that process, new beacons of light rise up that themselves express the local kind of uh, value system of of a given place. And they become sister churches that help us see a little differently the sides of Christ. Makes us realize, oh wait... Maybe I didn't see that right. Maybe there's a place that I've been blind and hidden away from some of the fullness of the light of Christ. And these multiplying churches living in community begins to help us see more fully who Jesus is. It's not just essential for us, but it's essential for the world. I imagine if you're like me, surrounded by neighbors who don't even realize the blindness that they are living in. You've had friends, just like I've had. This buddy said to me just recently, he'd come to a couple Bible studies, and then he's like, look, Andrew, I'm really not going to come. I mean, I like you guys, but I don't put my faith in God. I put my faith in humanity. Another friend said to my wife, again, as she was inviting her, just to go deeper into a pursuit of God, she said, look, bottom line, I just don't see any need for God in my life. And this is just so regular in our communities. This systemic blindness that holds us, holds a society, holds a whole culture it seems here in John. This systemic blindness is so dangerous because it helps enforce all personal blindness. Did you hear how vicious these Pharisees are? We can kind of read through the story and we can kind of miss the layers of oppression that is depicted in this story. The fear of the neighbors, the fear of the parents. They can't even defend their own son. They can't even celebrate his healing because they are afraid of the power structure there in their given society. These Pharisees oppress the parents. They oppress the blind man. They use their power to enforce their own personal blind agenda. They don't want to see. And this is where we go from just kind of systemic blindness to realizing how the Bible speaks of the nature of our own. How blindness gets into our heart. The blindness of unbelief. In the book of Romans, Paul's writing this letter explaining what blindness looks like. Some level. Another way of explaining this. And he speaks of the blind hearts of a world that refuses to accept God. He says, in their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. Although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their futile their foolish hearts were darkened. They suppress the truth. Can you see that in the Pharisees' hearts? Suppressing the truth. They don't want to see a a man who was blind, who now can see, is standing in their midst. And they throw him out of the temple. This is just one of the most unbelievable ironies. This man has spent his entire life right in the, like the very doorstep of the temple, never seeing it. He gets his first chance to come into the temple, to come there into the precinct. He's standing with the Pharisees, finally, for the first time, to come into God's presence. And he can all, he's there for what, maybe an hour? And they throw him out. You have to see how vicious these systems can be. Because it's only, seeing will only begin when you start to recognize your own blindness. Throughout this whole story, there are only two people who can see. Jesus and the man who used to be blind. Jesus who proclaims himself the light of the world and the blind man whose profession is this, one thing I know. I was blind, but now I see. Could be the best and simplest profession of faith that the world has ever known. I believe this moment with Jesus where he applies that mud, and John uses this word real Uh, Insightful word, kind of as a literary writer. This word anointed is what John says, anointed this man's eyes with mud. I believe it's the key to understanding the whole passage. There's lots of interpretations for why this is happening. I mean, it's got to be one of the stranger scenes in the Bible. Some see in it a reference to Genesis 2 where God breathes into basically this mud and he forms humanity out of the very dust of the earth. Some see it a reference to this healing of Naaman where, early, where in the Old Testament, this guy has to go and wash seven times into this water and then he's healed of leprosy. I think what's happening here is that Jesus takes the earth and he spits into it. It's just an amazing moment. He takes some dirt... Some physical, corrupted ground. It's been walked over by thousands and thousands of people. Something common. And he puts himself into it. Takes a physical expression of his mouth, his words, his saliva, his body and his word placed here into the dirt. And then he smears it over this guy's eyes. Old theologian and pastor, John Calvin, he says this. Jesus makes this man doubly blind. He causes the man to feel his blindness. And then he sends the man to go wash in the pool of the scent. In verse 4, Jesus says he calls himself the scent one. And then he sends him to go and wash in the pool of the scent one. Go wash in my pool. Feel your blindness and then go wash in my pool and you will be healed. And there the man recognizes his blindness. He gropes through the streets. And he just believes that if he can just come wash in these waters, he'll be able to see. And he does. Do you get it? Do you get it for yourself? Do you get it for our our world? Have you had that experience where you're wandering through the streets of life with caked mud over over your eyes? Feeling for yourself, groping, why can't I see why does my life make sense? Why can't, I make, well, why can't I see what's happening around me? You have to feel that blindness. Because only then will you go to the pool of the sent one and receive your sight. This is for the unbeliever and the believer as well. Because we all have the mud of the world on our eyes. We hold to its beliefs... When Jesus alone is the light that matters. And only through him and in him will we see. I love this, and maybe may be overly uh, creating a metaphor, but I, I think there's a lot here. We need to get the spit of Jesus into our world experience. His word and his body needs to get into this world that we are in. Only then will we be able to properly see what is going on around us. This has huge implications for your spiritual life. Implications for the nature of belief in general. You see, if the starting point of truly seeing is embracing your blindness, what do you think spiritual growth is going to look like? Or feel like. Jesus is going to increasingly be causing you to feel your blindness. He's going to keep putting mud in your eyes. Keep leading you to places where you have to foolishly grope through the streets. In order to find his healing. So many times it's happening to us and we feel like, what's wrong? Why am I I not growing? I can't see. Exactly. Jesus is going to be doing this because this is what gives you a testimony. So many of us think that my testimony was that moment way back then. Way back in that moment, however many years ago. Instead of being able to recognize that I was blind yesterday and I saw today. And I have a testimony in this very moment. It's amazing, but this blind man goes to the pool of the sent one, and then he is sent right into the temple to bear witness. He stands before his neighbors, before the Pharisees, before his parents, and he stands there and he proclaims, I was blind, but now I see. They ask him, where is this man? He goes, I don't know. Who is he? He goes, a prophet? I mean, he knows so little. He doesn't know where he is. He's got like very little biblical understanding of Jesus. But what's so incredible in John is the Pharisees look at him and says, you're one of his disciples. He is the first man in the book of John to be called a disciple of Jesus. His profession was so simple. One thing I know that though I was blind, now I see. I'm learning this over and over and over again in my life. We think it's so complicated to profess Christ, but really, it takes so little to be a witness. Do your neighbors know that you used to be blind? Do they notice that now you can see? If so, then you have a story to share. It doesn't start with the seeing, it starts with the blindness. It starts with acknowledging the ways that the mud still to this day keeps getting in your eyes and you're feeling your blindness and you're groping about and yet you know that there is one, a pool that you can come to over and over again and sight is given to you in Christ. That happened one time and it continues on happening. As Christ lives through you. You can be a witness. That's why we believe the church is the witness. I mean, think about... if If you go from where we started with that picture of you in blindness. If you will take it to the full extent of how John understands this. Of a world in darkness. And the darkness, not like the darkness we know of. Our night is still itself beautiful. There's still depth and stars, and there's still a sense of, 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 of elegance to it. But a night of just total, a darkness of total uh, incomprehensible, unfeelable emptiness. And this is the way John is depicting the world outside of Christ. And here stands a church in the middle of a neighborhood, in the middle of a community, next to a university, shining forth with light. Recognize the beauty and the power and the significance of this little body. This little thing that we do here, Sunday after Sunday, a lighthouse, a radio tower, a candle in the night shining forth. There is a place where you can come into the light. Got to tell this story. This little girl walked up to me yesterday. We had a outreach in Fairfield. She just walks up to me. She's five years old, and she says, "Do you know if there's a God?" I said, "I do." She goes, "How?" I said, because I talked to him. We're going to talk about answered prayer. I said, Penelope, the best thing is that this God says to you that if you will seek him with your whole heart, you'll find him. That's a promise. She walks from me, walks up to her and says, Mom, you know what? If we want to know God, all we got to do is keep knocking. Five years old. think what we're doing is insignificant. Another Valentine's party, another children's outreach, another chance to host our kids in Sunday school, another Bible class that you're teaching, another service outreach. This is light in the midst of darkness. Finally, as we come to a close, third, why is this so significant? Because whoever you are and whatever you believe, you will never see your life circumstances rightly until you see it through Jesus. You see, the disciples basically ask, why is this man blind? And I'm sure this man, his parents, the neighbors, probably even some of the Pharisees, had all asked a very similar question. Why is this happening? Why this suffering? Why this death, this sickness, this failure? Why is this happening in my life? And Jesus' response to all your questions of why you're suffering, why you're blindness, is the same thing he says to the disciples. Why? It's so the works of God might be displayed. And this is for Everyone without the light of Jesus shining over the circumstances of your life, you will simply create some system, just like the neighbors did, just like the Pharisees, some system to justify your explanation of the pain, which in the end will only cause you and those around you more pain. But if you will let Jesus' light in, let him and the glory of his work on the cross be the light explaining and, 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 ha- and shining over whatever the circumstance is. You will see the works of God on display, even in the most horrible, life-defining moments. If you will acknowledge, I am blind to this. I cannot see I don't know why such suffering would happen. If you would acknowledge that and then go to the pool of the sent one, go to Christ, go where he sends you, and let him be the light in those circumstances. His promise is that this is so that the glory of God will be on display. Whatever the pain, whatever the trial, there is only one thing you need to know. I was blind that is the beginning of sight remember how in my story at the beginning I had our blind beggar thinking I wonder what light looks like well John tells us that this man didn't have one long to wonder after being thrown out of the synagogue light finds him Jesus comes and he says do you believe in the son of man and the beggar says who is he sir That I may believe in him. And Jesus says, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. The man sees light for the first time. And he responds, Lord, I believe. And he falls down in worship. This is what's available to you this morning. Sinner, I invite you to leave your blindness behind. Leave the systems of the world and your selfish false beliefs. You don't have to know everything there is to know about Jesus. This guy knew nothing except to obey Him and go to the pool. Christian, leave the influences of the world behind. Stop trying to see where you can't see. Accept where you're blind and finally fall at the feet of Jesus, the light of the world, and worship Him. For then you will see the works of God accomplished in and through you. This is happening all across the globe. Churches are being lit up by the light of life. San Francisco, Milwaukee, Haiti, Kenya, Fairfield, Wallingford, now Milford. Jesus, the light of the world, is radiating from his church. And blind people are coming to the pools of the sent one and they are being healed. And they're going forth with their own testimony. You may not have it all figured out. Can't tell you what the Messiah was. They don't know prophet, priest, and king yet. All they got is that I was blind and now I see. And this man did it to me. This is what Jesus is doing in this church. Come and join him. Step into that. Come to his light. Come and see today. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I can't wait to meet this man. can only imagine how much he grew, how much more he came to know and understand. So we thank you for the starting points of our spiritual lives. We thank you that you have come to us. You made us feel our blindness. You called us to yourself, washed us and healed us. And you sent us out as a witness. And we thank you, God, for the continued growth as light continues to open us to more and more. Help us not to shy away from that exposure. But week after week, here in your services, as we're gathered in community, as we come under the teaching of your word, studying it for ourselves, God, may we be receptive to you, open to the shining light of Christ. Give us eyes to see and change us forever. And then help us to go forth and declare that to the world because they need it too. And let your light break forth. For you are the light of the world. Amen.